healthcare systems across the globe uh, are not able to accommodate the escalation in the healthcare cost. Everybody is revisiting the cost of the healthcare system. And this is irreversible. More focus will be given toward prevention. Uh, patients' minimum right is to look for the well-being. And all, uh, uh, I would say, startups or all companies that will uh, propose value within that uh, within that segment or within that value chain will be uh, definitely a dominant player in the future. So thanks everyone for joining us today. We have a, a very special episode ahead. Uh, Sarah and I are very excited to have Dr. Fayyad Dendashi, CEO of Tamir Healthcare with us today. Dr. Fayyad, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me as well. Um, so we're, we're very excited about today's conversation. Um, I'd love it if you could kick us off by telling us a bit more about yourself. Uh, thank you, Stephanie, one more time, and Sarah as well. Uh, so um, uh, my name is Fayyad Al-Dendashi. I'm CEO of Tamar Healthcare. I have joined the group uh, in January 2020. Uh, prior to that, I used to be working for the public sector as a public servant, uh, five years uh, combined between Ministry of Health and um, uh, partially in the Ministry of Economy and Planning. Uh, last uh, position was uh, the Minister of Health as an Assistant Deputy Minister for Healthcare Investment. Uh, prior to that, uh, there was a journey of around uh, 11 years in the healthcare uh, startups as an entrepreneur, starting my first company in the biotech and followed by uh, healthcare diagnostics uh, for uh, six years. I'm a physician by education. I graduated from King Abdulaziz University, followed by uh, a year and a half in the internal medicine department as a resident, uh, and then uh, uh, decided to pursue the entrepreneurial journey in the healthcare. That's coupled with a couple of uh, executive uh, management program. Last was at uh, Harvard as a general uh, management program, uh, 2019. So I, I'm. I've, I've wanted to ask you this for a while. It's interesting because you've, um, you've obviously uh, uh, managed organizations at very high levels and you've also had your experience as an entrepreneur. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. So uh, to be frank, uh, the entrepreneurial experience was uh, instrumental in my, uh, in my entire career. So uh, getting to know the industry from a bottom-up um, uh, especially in the very few early days in 2000, 2002. Uh, that was a marvelous uh, experience and get to know things, how, how entrepreneurial and how entrepreneurs uh, face uh, system challenges uh, to a very large extent. Um, moving toward the uh, uh, public sector at a later stage and looking for things from, uh, from the top, again, top down, uh, approach uh, was again um, another experience uh, and uh, amalgamating both bottom-up top-down experience was uh, quite unique uh, in terms of uh, market insights industries knowledge uh, especially in that uh, time of the of the history of the nation um, undergoing massive transformation at many fronts healthcare is being one of them and uh, um, economy. I mean, 
being the forefront of the entire um, transformation um, was quite unique. And um, last but not least, a landing on the largest uh, healthcare conglomerate in Saudi Arabia and the healthcare, in particular pharma and medical distribution business um, at a company that is almost uh, celebrating 100 years anniversary uh, is also another challenge. Um, but uh, we, I personally believe that uh, there is a lot that could be done in the sector and positive contribution could be done at a company level. So you moved from public sector to private sector and just like want, wanted to know more about how, do you, how, how did you see the evolution um, in the healthcare space um, and the drivers that, that, uh, that drove that evolution? So how have you seen it in the past uh, 10 years? To be frank, uh, there's a lot of changes happening in the healthcare, not only locally, but uh, globally. And uh, as you're probably aware of, healthcare is really on the verge of massive disruption. Uh, tech companies, tech giants are penetrating into the sector. They sense some sort of, um, I won't say inefficiency, but potential optimization and potential improvements in the sector by exploiting uh, the data that is currently available but unutilized and uncaptured in the healthcare system with a lot of, uh, again, science disruption and, sci and, 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 and science evolution in many fronts in the healthcare sector. Uh, those combined, uh, again, with uh, quite um, uh, challenging healthcare systems across the globe. Um, Saudi Arabia is not far from the rest of the world in terms of its own challenges uh, in the healthcare system. But you can add to them uh, many other challenges uh, that necessitates a, a massive transformation, uh, which the government is currently pursuing uh, in terms of uh, reforming the healthcare, the entire healthcare sector. I mean, we 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 can we can elaborate on this further. Um, most important is the financial sustainability of the healthcare system and the segregation of. Um, policy-making, legislation, regulation from service provision, which is the uh, essential uh, or the basic uh, stepping stone toward uh, proper governance and the healthcare system, uh, which the government is pursuing at this stage. Yeah, so we've, uh, in our experience, we've seen uh, health tech specifically uh, being a little bit slower just because of the regulation. But uh, to your point, regulation is changing and and. It, it's going towards a positive uh, path. Um, is that what you're seeing in Saudi Arabia, what you're seeing globally being implemented in Saudi Arabia and the region? Uh, I think, um, I strongly believe that Saudi was in the forefront of um, major uh, legislation reform or legislative reform, uh, not only limited or confined to the healthcare system, but across uh, the entire nation. And again, if you look at startups and uh, the entrepreneurial landscape or ecosystem, uh, it has been um, quite uh, looked at uh, and all enablers, all system enablers to be, to be precise, uh, were offered and, uh, and reformed uh, within, within Saudi. So you look at uh, uh, what, you call, what you call is the uh, startup ranking index 
Again, you look at the time to obtain the license, and among many other things, there was a major uh, improvement in, in, the, in the ecosystem. The, support, the financing piece uh, related to, again, creation of SME authority was uh, instrumental really to the, health, to the startup ecosystem. Uh, the financing part also has been tackled. That's an entire ecosystem support. Uh, on the healthcare in particular, yes, there was a reform in the legislation enabling startups, introducing a new function and new um, specialties within the healthcare system, enabling uh, old um, uh, digital, digital uh, or health tech startups. They were all uh, integrated. And that's why we noticed that uh, the speed of change and the acceptance and adoption of the market in terms of uh, startups and disruption uh, was uh, quite tangible. Um, and that has been proven with the pandemic, with the novel uh, COVID-19. Uh, you can, we can notice the acceleration that happened in the healthcare landscape from the e-prescription toward telemedicine, teleconsultation, etc. Without proper infrastructure, um, I mean, the success rate could have been much lower, much more lower, vis-a-vis -vis what has been achieved uh, in the uh, second year of 2020 and uh, up to date. So I, I, I want to echo what you're saying because we've we've also seen, I think, um, also very recently, a new crop of companies operating um, in healthcare and health tech and different permutations of e-pharma, particularly out of Saudi. Um, and it, it seems as though globally there's been sort of three evolutions of, of health tech. And the first one maybe being um, kind of digitizing uh, records, so EMRs, and then going from there to the first kind of wave of companies we've seen. And this is also paralleled in the region is how to improve um, but at a, at a, maybe at a more kind of initial level, um, so booking platforms, so improving that point of contact between care providers and patients, and then moving closer to what we can call, I guess, healthcare or health tech 3.0, where it's seen as telehealth as a platform. So using sort of this digital or this kind of um, uh, new infrastructure that's being built to offer all sorts of things. Um, and I feel that the companies that, that are being launched now or that have been launched very recently um, are targeting different aspects of the value chain in, in healthcare. And I think that's going to make for the next few years are going to look very different. And I think, um, you know, echoing some of the things I've been reading, potentially at some point we'll, we won't be calling it health tech anymore. We'll just be calling it healthcare because it would have been completely um, uh, redesigned. Um, but speaking on, on regulations, what would you say is, um, what have you seen, and not necessarily in the region, but what, what have you seen globally perhaps that you think is a good example um, of, of how things have been managed, particularly as, as I know, you know, data tends to be a very sensitive topic. So particularly for that. I would say with confidence what happened in COVID, for example, the speed and the acceleration of the approval process. You can think of COVID vaccine being approved for emergency use in less than 12 months. And if you go back to history, there were some approval process that, again, not only approval, but the research and development 
peace in particular that took up to 30 years. And now we, when we look into the approval process of uh, COVID vaccines from a start of an R&D to emergency use authorization in less than 12 months, that's phenomenal, that's historical. And again, um, this is not to question the credibility or uh, uh, of the vaccine, but uh, on the contrary is the amount of investments in the R&D um, in the pharma space, coupled with the regulator uh, acceptance uh, of fast-tracking the uh, review and the uh, validity and the approval process, that combined had led to an approval process in, uh, for in less than 12 months. That's again phenomenal. If you look at the pipeline and what could be done on the industry, if you fast forward or you overcome the bottlenecks in the process, that will only lead to a better outcome over time. Um, and again, if we look at the regulation piece, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia in early 19 has revamped its uh, uh, regulatory framework, again, introducing many new functions and many new verticals within the regulation that enabled the presence of uh, telehealth players, for example. And without that prerequisite being in place and opening up the sector for new functions, uh, we would have approached COVID time without any operating companies in the space. And it would be by then too late to start that process or organize the process. So in a landscape of entrepreneurs and, and the regulator, there is always a dilemma who starts first. Usually it's uh, a regulation driven by entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs comes with, come with an idea and then the regulator should act and build the right legislation and, and regulation for, for entrepreneurs. Uh, in Saudi, uh, the move why was a bit, uh, I won't say late, but quite uh, uh, responsive to the dynamics changing across the globe. And regulation came up uh, just at the perfect time, uh, you know, few years before the start of the COVID. And we have noticed the dynamics happening at the sector where many startups, uh, many entrepreneurs uh, opting to go and, and, and start their own businesses vis-a-vis -vis becoming uh, an employee. So like become an employer rather than an employee instead of being a job seeker, they become job creators. And that's the beauty of uh, a, a good uh, uh, regulation and a good legislation being in place ahead of time. Yeah, and we're certainly seeing the impact of it already. Um, so going back to, to, to last year, um, where everything was sort of in flux, what would you say would be the long-term effects of 2020. Obviously, you know, a lot of us have had to go online first uh, for numerous things, you know, uh, primarily for work, obviously for education, but also for access to um, health care services. What do you think um, would, would have a lasting impact? What are some things that we're never going to go back from? So I think... Um... I mean, many fronts, uh, I would say things that were directly related to COVID and things that will be indirectly impacted by COVID. Uh, 
So if we look at the supply side, um, the interruption of supply chain will be uh, gradually uh, being assessed and hopefully eliminated. Uh, so uh, we look at, uh, I mean, most countries, most nations will start looking into insourcing versus outsourcing, insuring versus offshoring. Uh, countries will be less uh, tolerant for uh, interruption in essential goods like healthcare, uh, pharmaceutical products, medical products, and, and, and PPEs. Uh, and therefore, internal capacities will be built over time. Uh, and we have seen um, many initiatives now in Saudi in particular in terms of localization of pharmaceutical industries, localization of medical equipments and consumables. Uh, and I think this is a reversible path. Uh, on the service provision, um, of course, telehealth, telemedicine um, is now there to last. Um, there is a very little likelihood that we will go to the pre-COVID level. Uh, referring to one of McKinsey's report, the size of the market could reach up to 25% of the global healthcare market. That's translated into around 200 and, uh, uh, 250, around 250 billion US dollars, uh, where uh, digital platforms, digital digitally enabled technology could replace and substitute the current way of uh, offering treatment to the inpatient. Uh, that's massive. And the industry has been growing, um, but we have seen exponential growth in the COVID. Few players were not able to catch and sustain that growth, but few others have been successful enough to continue on the same rate of growth uh, to the, uh, in the post-COVID era. Um, for example, uh, I, would, I would refer to e-pharma, for example. Um, many conventional players uh, have uh, offered omni-channels, and online sales have been surging. Um, and continue to sustain their uh, post-COVID level. And I think this trend will continue to be there in the market. Uh, with the adoption of physicians uh, uh, for, for, uh, for digitally enabled tools and, and, and again platforms, I think this will only continue heading north. Um, more physicians will become part of, of um, platforms um, where they can offer their teleconsultation online, they can dispense their medication uh, via platforms. Um, more patient adoptions will happen with time. And therefore, um, I believe in the, in the long run, um, that will present major uh, uh, significant uh, part of the entire healthcare system and service provision in particular. Um, just to add to that uh, or to kind of come back to the different question. So COVID did trigger a lot of the health tech to kind of emerge all over the world. Uh, but I just want to know what, where do you see the opportunity, the largest opportunity in health tech? Is it in e-pharma? Is it in telehealth or in all of them? Because we've seen just from our experience, we've seen a lot of direct-to-consumer products emerging within healthcare itself. Um, and we've seen a lot in e-pharma and delivery 
in care delivery, like home care delivery. So I just want to understand from your point of view, where do you see the largest opportunity in Saudi Arabia today? And there are multiple uh, opportunities and, and fronts where you can uh, exploit the current uh, system inefficiencies in a way so or the disruption happening across the globe so let's let's um, agree on the um, high level uh, framework uh, the shift of uh, patient management from hospital setup to a home setup um, this is happening and this will continue to be the direction people will be, or patient will be less inclined toward receiving treatment at hospital vis-a-vis at home. So that hospital bed eventually will become at home one day. Do you think that's because of, uh, is it COVID related that people want to be treated at home and don't want to be treated in public places? Or is it because of the convenience of it in general? Um, Basically for all of the above. So in the pre-COVID level, people would have more convenient being treated at home and less um, uh, interaction uh, being at a hospital setup. And now with the COVID and what happened with the physical distancing and social distancing and the uh, fear of infection spread, uh, uh, patients and, 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 and the end user believe that why not um, discontinue at home uh, setup? not being at a hospital setup. And that's a question that is a legitimate question asked by the patient and service provider should only accept the patient preference and behavior whereby treatment could be offered at home. Um, and just to enumerate few opportunities, the home devices, home wearable devices, remote monitoring devices, those are experiencing a massive expected massive growth in the healthcare sector. Uh, home setup uh, dialysis, for example. Uh, there is no point why the patient should go to a hospital setup to receive uh, or uh, undergo uh, hemodialysis or dialysis in general, uh, renal dialysis in general. Um, treatment of, for example, diabetes. Patient could be uh, self-monitored in terms of a blood uh, glucose level, and that could be in a constant feeds with their primary physician, whereby less interference at the hospital or the primary care setup is required. Um, uh, among many other things, among among many other things, again um, dispensing of uh, or refill of medications and refill of certain consumables, this could happen at at, at home. Um, it does not necessitate the patient to go physically visit any service provider. Uh, that's in the pure uh, medical part, but there's also the, well, the well-being part. Again, this is a segment that is integral, uh, pivotal in the healthcare system, but um, not well addressed, not only in Saudi, but in the rest of the globe. We are in the, we are in the business of healthcare, uh, and again, we need to look into the well-being and the prevention part uh, or the preventive part uh, of the patient sites. Uh, this is uh, underpenetrated segment, definitely a lot of initiatives and disruption could happen in that space and the well-being and the preventive um, uh, science uh, within the healthcare. Uh, those all together 
combined with the patient consciousness, patient increase, patient education, will only lead to uh, a surge in the demand of uh, disruptive science and, and technology and health tech again um, um, in that space. So we can only see positive adoption and perception for disruption in the healthcare space. I want to come back to wellness and, and uh, uh, consumer awareness in general. But I wanted to ask, as you know, every um, kind of area in the space digitizes and some of the things, as you said, uh, almost get decentralized, so you don't necessarily need to go um, to a healthcare facility uh, to do, a, uh, you know, to, to, to get renal dialysis or to get access to a certain type of treatment. It seems as though, you know, certain things need to be optimized, obviously, but particularly interoperability, um, you know, uh, records perhaps may need to be accessed or standardized. Um, how do we get there? Um, very good question. I think... Um this is not uh, a local issue, it's a global issue. And again, integration, interoperability between medical devices, between, uh, again, medical devices and service provider, uh, patient files, etc., cetera, uh, is integral. And this is basically where the disruption is happening at the moment. So moving all the way toward a digitized infrastructure uh, that will help really um, uh, a streamline uh, integration between patient data and a centralized data in a way, with the data being available to not only one specific service provider, but to uh, the entire pool of service providers. That will help first ensure the accuracy, improve efficiency in the system, and make proper decision-making uh, by the physician. Uh, and again, you can see silos, many silos in the uh, patient files or patient data. Uh, sometimes repetitive uh, diagnostics tests uh, are being requested just for the sake of, uh, you know, lack of integration between service providers. This will be all eliminated in the future. And again, interoperability becomes uh, a prerequisite uh, for all uh, products for all services that will emerge in the future. And you need to ensure that they are all interconnected among each other. And again, uh, unified elect electronic medical record will be um, a prerequisite, will become a more a necessity rather than an option uh, in the future. Um, uh, data centralization will become more and more critical with time. And that uh, and again, migration of the current data and centralization of data would become more important in the future. You know, as you said, um, the, the monitoring space is also booming. I think that's also become, you know, part of that uh, has also become a little bit mainstream. As a consumer behavior, we've all kind of adopted the habit of knowing you know, very basic things to start with, how many steps we've taken during the day, but then, you know, everyone's got, an, uh, got a, a watch that tells you what your heart rate is, but then you go from there to being able to monitor multiple things about yourself or um, gaining a better understanding also of what these mean for you and, and, and for your wellness. If the data actually exists 
at a patient level, how can that be transmitted um, you know, to, to their care providers in a way that they can take action on it? Um, are we very far from that or are we um, looking essentially at integrations in the next few years? Let me give you an example of what's going on. Today there is a tele-ICU. So ICU is the most critical uh, setup uh, in the patient, uh, uh, I would say, um, value chain in the healthcare system. And yet, this is being monitored remotely through a tele-ICU. Uh, now you can interfere with stroke patient um, in a remote setup. And this is the most time-sensitive conditions and situations for any patients, where minutes make big difference. If the healthcare system was able or were able to reach to the level of tele-ICU um, and, and tele-stroke management in a way, then the rest will become much more easier. Monitoring the patient at home 24-7 is basically, and again, through a seamless integration of data, is becoming not only imminent, uh, but inevitable. Patient should have the choice where his vitals, prediction of any potential diseases or malfunction should be uh, anticipated by the system. Patient will not accept anymore that abruptly I have a certain disease. And we have seen this with the predictable medicine era uh, today. So with the well-being part, with the preventive part, and I think both will constitute more than 80% of the healthcare um, spending over the coming decades. People will spend more time on the well-being, on the prevention, uh, to prevent any diseases to occur at a later stage. And then it becomes when patients take all the precautions uh, or precautionary measures then the likelihood of developing certain disease will become less. If a patient is known to have high susceptibility to develop diabetes, for example, type 2 diabetes, then all precautions, all preventive measures have to take place from day one. And this is happening. And how can you do this? Again, data being integral part of this, among many other things. But if you start noticing, noticing that your blood glucose level is increasing before you develop diabetes, then it's a time where you can act and start closely monitoring your blood glucose level. Uh, this is patient right. And it, the system should only enable such practice to happen over the long run and the foreseen future. Uh, it cannot be that the patient all of a sudden discover that he is diabetic patient will not accept this anymore in the future. 
and, and the direction of all healthcare policymakers is really to focus more on the preventive part. Because even from a cost perspective, uh, cost, of cost of prevention is a fraction of cost of the cost of a treating a patient. Just to throw some figures and numbers, the cost of treating a diabetic patient is eight times uh, greater than the cost of treating a normal patient. Uh, obese patient is the same. It could go up to 16 times the cost of a normal uh, of a normal individual. And again, healthcare systems across the globe uh, are not able to accommodate the escalation in the healthcare cost. Everybody is revisiting the cost of the healthcare system. And this is irreversible. More focus will be given toward prevention. Uh, patients' minimum right is to look for the well-being. And all, uh, uh, I would say, startups or all companies that will uh, propose value within that, uh, within that segment or within that value chain will be uh, definitely a dominant player in the future. The notion that you brought up of a certain mind, um, mindset shift is fascinating, uh, where patients will no longer accept um, to receive like a surprise diagnosis. Um, you know, they will be part of the process, they will be monitoring, they will be aware of it. Um, and I just have a really quick follow-up question on this. It feels like this is one of those things that we learn as we go. Uh, we, you know, we've, we were talking about this the other day with one of our portfolio companies, Valio. Um, you, you know, you always think that, uh, you know, you're, you're in good health until you realize that there are certain things that you need to be looking at a bit more seriously. But how do you increase this type of awareness um, and kind of incentivize people to, to, um, to, to be mindful of, of monitoring certain things in a preventative way? Uh, thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> I, I, I strongly believe, um, again, many prerequisites are required. So one of which, and I believe is the first, the first and foremost, is patient education. Uh, patients are now being more educated. Uh, they have uh, access to latest science. Uh, publishment articles in the space. Uh, they become more conscious about their well-being. And again, the patient education piece is instrumental uh, in that journey. Uh, and it's, to be frank, it is being driven by the patient more than the uh, service provider. Uh, patients are asking um, for prevention and asking for um, their well-being. Uh, that's one. Uh, two is the uh, again the evolution of the science. Um, again, we have we have addressed predictable medicine, but now there are multiple uh, uh, testing uh, in the DNA, for example, space. So the cost of doing a DNA test was in the million dollar in the past gene sequencing, for example, and now it's like a fraction of its cost, uh, and that will only lead to more demand. Uh, being introduced in the system. People will get to know more about their basic 
components, basic DNA components, the likelihood and the susceptibility to develop certain diseases vis-a-vis -vis others. And again, they take the necessary precautions from day one. Uh, this is happening. Uh, and again, it's a matter of affordability uh, and, and, and accessibility to those, uh, 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 for example, diagnostics tools. Uh, but it's happening. Uh, so if you combine both the educational part with the availability of certain tools uh, in the system, um, automatically patient will be inclined toward knowing more about their uh, body, about their health, and that awareness will only go uh, up with time. Uh, and again, you need just proven success stories where patient will be able to prevent developing certain diseases, and then it will be a domino effect. The rest will follow. Uh, patient will need success stories in, the, in this space uh, to adopt and again to adapt um, uh, such trend and behavior. And it's happening. We can see it, we can sense it. Uh, we have seen multiple success stories in that space. Um, and you can see, you can see healthy patients versus uh, ill patients. You can see that because, because of the consciousness. Uh, uh, part because of maintaining certain diseases versus the other patients ignoring the disease, you can see the difference. Um, and therefore, I believe with time, more emphasis will be given toward the well-being and the preventive uh, part of the healthcare uh, system or the healthcare service overall. Um, Dr. Fayad, I wanted to extend the conversation just um, a bit differently on, on preventative measures. Um, on mental uh, health, because COVID did trigger globally um, a lot of mental health issues, depression, anxiety, insomnia. And I, I think that they've also um, been echoed in the region. However, on, from the technology point of view and from uh, the way um, the dem demographics are in the region, I think mental health is still a very taboo subject and people don't uh, necessarily talk about it very openly. So I just wanted to understand from your point of view, um, how do you see that changing in, in the future as, as, I, as there was a trigger and I think a lot of people did face a lot of mental health issues during the past year. Do you think that's something that's changing in the region? Or, or is it still something that's kind of unspoken? So um, I think you have addressed a very sensitive topic. And uh, to be frank, mental health falls under what's called behavior medicine. And uh, this is a, a big challenge globally. Um, quoting some uh, figures that at least 50% of the population of the global population or the world population have element of anxiety and depression. Of course, subclinical depression. And that's major, 50% of the entire population. Now, if we look at COVID, and if we look at Saudi Arabia in particular, um, there is an important healthcare um, parameter at the policy level. Um, which is called DALI, um, Disability Adjusted Lost Years. 
um, the third or the fourth, if I recall well, uh, leading cause of Delhi in Saudi Arabia was depression and anxiety disorders. Um, and the reason is, um, if again you dissect the entire patient experience in the mental health space, there is first of all the uh, awareness part, which is quite uh, undermined um, in, in Saudi Arabia and most of the patients are not able to recognize uh, that uh, awareness component of the diagnosis. Then you reach to a diagnosis uh, where again it requires a lot of expertise and know-how and knowledge and the space to be able to diagnose the patient with any psychiatric problem uh, or again um, mental health issues. And then you reach to a, toward the diagnosis uh, sorry, toward the treatment. And again, the treatment for mental health is not pure medication. It's a comprehensive, holistic approach to any patient with um, mental health issues that needs to be addressed. It's never uh, a medical treatment alone. And if you look at the entire, uh, again, components of um, awareness, diagnosis, and treatment, um, you can really define uh, major setbacks in each component of the patient journey. Uh, and again, what happened with COVID is just an acceleration or, or amplification, let's say, of the current problem. Uh, many patient, many uh, patients, uh, they are patients today, but they were not patient uh, before the COVID, uh, passed through a tough time. Um, and again, um, that only led to um, exaggeration uh, and aggregation of uh, mental health problems that need to be seriously um, taken care of. And again, this is not a Saudi problem. This is a global problem. We have seen the incidence of uh, mental health issues quadrupling in some countries uh, from a pre-COVID to a post-COVID level. This is becoming um, um, another pandemic in a way. And it really has to be taken care of um, by being first recognized and given enough attention from all policymakers uh, across the globe. Yes, fully agreed. Uh, we see, we see, uh, uh, we see that um, every day, and we see companies trying to solve for it. Um, but there are major struggles in the in the space. I think we, you know, given the context of of today, I think we're we're bound to see um, different models come up. Um, I, I know it's quite challenging, but I think. It's a very clear need um, today. Dr. Fayyad, we're almost out of time. Um, I, I wanted to, to kind of end this on a kind of a, like a forward thinking note. Um, if we were, you know, in an ideal scenario, if we were looking at the industry um, five years from now, what would you, you know, what would it look like to you? What are the three things that uh, 
you'd like to see happen? So, um, I, I believe that uh, there will be more emphasis on uh, primary care setup. Uh, and again, going back to the old uh, uh, standard of having a family physician. Um, um, so one physician that look at the entire family, he knows the entire, he knows the patient quite well, applying what's called the gatekeeper model, where again, primary care setup will become more dominant with time. Uh, less patient being transferred to a tertiary care setup for, again, uh, basic healthcare needs. Um, that's inevitable. It has to happen. It has uh, multiple positive outcome, uh, one uh, of which is reducing the healthcare cost, of course, and most importantly, uh, applying the preventive measures toward uh, the patients. So, um, more evolution of the primary care setup. Um, that's definitely number one. Two, uh, I think the digital landscape. Um, we can see that uh, more patients will seek um, digital platforms for teleconsultation, for education, um, creating community in the healthcare uh, space, again, will become more and more uh, dominant with time. Um, this is, I believe, is, is inevitable. Uh, the third, again, which is the well-being well part, and I, I believe that patient will start uh, looking for uh, uh, their health and their well-being as a priority. Uh, in the past, patient uh, used to look for the first option uh, or the best option for the medical treatment. Now, this is going to change. The patient will look for the entire uh, health status, for the well-being, uh, more than the medical treatment per se, uh, or the health treatment per se. Uh, I believe more demand will, will, be, will be happening in the, or will be generated in the well-being space. Um, that's, that's, that's for sure. Uh, this is what I see from uh, from uh, being from a practical point of view, and again, uh, with the knowledge of uh, multiple initiatives happening at the government level and the private sector level. Uh, what uh, what I hope uh, that I can see in the foreseen future, um, and again, the the adoption of emerging science and technology in the healthcare space. So, we see. Uh, uh, science of um, um, gene therapy, for example, uh, cell-based therapy, again, for example, um, AI-enabled um, technology or modalities of treatment that will only increase the accuracy uh, of the diagnosis of certain diseases that uh, we hope that we can see it in the foreseen future in this part of the world. It looks like um, uh, there's a lot to be looking forward to and a lot of ground to cover as well. Um, Dr. Fayyad, I want to thank you a lot for your time today and, um, and thank you as always for the very interesting exchanges.
Thank you so much, Dr. Fayad. It was really interesting. Thank you very much. Truly appreciate it. And again, one more time, thank you for the kind invite.